Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is interview with an examiner. We have a very special guest with us, Dr. Mark Lai. As always in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Lai has worked at the Royal Brisbane since 2000 after completing fellowships in both neuroanesthesia and cardiac anesthesia at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. His interest in part two teaching and early experience as assistant SOT for many years led him to becoming a fellowship examiner in 2007. He's recently retired from the Court of Examiners. Dr. Lai has a particular interest in food and wine, which he tells us was only encouraged by hanging out with other examiners. <laughs> Mark, welcome to Deep Breath. Thank you. So by the time trainees make it to the final exam, they've already done a huge amount of study and they've successfully navigated the primary. But these two exams are quite different in many ways. What do you think are the key differences between preparing for the primary exam and preparing for the final exam? Well, the key to the primary was understanding concepts and, of course, remembering facts. You know, there are lots of trivial facts that needed to be categorised and I think that's how I studied for the primary. And I also said to our colleagues that if you can explain a concept, then you're showing understanding and you and, and you obviously understand how a concept works. With the fellowship, on the other hand, you're expected to know some facts and you need to be able to use those facts to justify your practice. Uh, you need to know some concepts and principles, but more importantly, you need to apply them with clinical judgment. Importantly, you need to have judgment. Uh, for example, in the primary, you've learnt lists and categories of antiarrhythmics, and you need to be able to regurgitate that. In the fellowship, you're given an unstable atrial fibrillation. You have to apply your own judgment. Will digoxin work in this situation? Is it appropriate to use sotalol? How much amiodarone? How fast can you give it? Those questions are not asked in the primary. In the second part, in an urgent situation, you need to be able to discern which ones you should use. So that's the big difference. Yeah, fantastic. I think that really summarises it well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's more about your application of a core knowledge that you develop for the part one exam that's being assessed in the part two exam. That's it. And and some learnt experience and then applying also some maybe knowledge you've read in articles or that other people have told you, even though you might not have actually done it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it's very unlikely that core knowledge of the primary will get asked for example, you know, nobody will ask you to draw saxomethonium, for example. So. For which we're eternally grateful. <laughs> I'm not sure I could do it in the primary when I did it. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. So, Mark, acknowledging that people have different learning styles and that exam prep differs widely between different types of people, do you have any general advice for how to approach study for the exam? Sure. I think a key is to have a study group. You really need friends to keep up your motivation. You need people to compare yourself with And I think for our overseas listeners, uh, people who are trained from overseas, you really need to get into a study group with Australians and Australian registrars because it really helps you to understand um, our training here, especially if you've come uh, from a different training system. Don't spend an enormous amount of time on the MCQ black banks. I think two months is okay, two to four months maybe. But if that's all you've studied, you're not going to pass the written paper just based on the MCQ banks. You do need to spend some time practicing SAQs. Horrifyingly, the SAQ marks oscillate between 40% and 60% pass more frequently than not in the 40%. 
And so I encourage people to write out practice answers. And not only will you realize how tired your hands are going to get, because we're also not used to writing with ballpoint pens anymore, but you can also show your results to your work colleagues and ask them to assess. There's one thing I've learned over the years is that you don't actually need to be an examiner to assess how crap your answer is. Any consultant can read it and go, you know, gosh, that is a truly crap SAQ answer. So, so you know, if you, if you just show it to your friends, uh, they can easily give you some feedback on how well you've answered that question. Yeah, that's so true. And it's actually probably, sorry to interrupt. Mark, no, not at all. It's probably a really good way of comparing the way you answer questions and the depth to which you answer questions to what other people are doing as well to get an idea of where you are in the pack because sometimes it can be hard to know where you are in comparison to what mm, other registrants indeed. are doing. So that's really great advice. Yeah. yeah. And I also suggest uh, as part of your study not to wait until after the written's or medicals before you start doing vivas. Mm. I think it's worth learning how to verbalise your answers, how to speak concisely, and it's an art. It shouldn't be left until just the weeks before your vivas. SAQs can be compared to the opening statements of vivas. And, and so if you can answer the vivas on the fly, formulate your answer on the fly, you know, seconds after you finish reading the, the viva stem, the same thing should be applied to the SAQs. You know, people find that inordinately difficult, but in actual fact, all of a sudden, eight weeks later, they're expected to do the same thing at the vivas and they think it's a different concept, but it's not really. It's the same skill set. Being able to think of your answers on the on the fly, think of how you're going to present them in a concise way, because even in vivas, you don't want somebody to open with a completely unstructured blurb. Yeah, mm, that's so true. And actually, going on from there, we should mention briefly that structure is absolutely key to answering the SAQs. It's if you go in there not knowing how to structure an answer properly, you're setting yourself up for a fail from the word go. I also like the point Mark you made about practicing handwriting because yes. I have particularly terrible handwriting. In fact, I have. I think we all do. <laughs> this one. So, Alec <laughs> I'm pointing to our podcast <laughs> listeners, actually has such great handwriting that she was asked to join a documentation committee at the oh, Royal wow. Hospital as a junior doctor. Do you oh, wow. remember that? I don't remember yeah, that. It was hilarious. That's um, amazing. But I don't, and I get a very, because it's so terrible, I get a very sore hand. And I actually, you know, it's a bit like training for a sporting event yes. in the sense that I thought, I have to practice it. Yes. So I sat down and I did 15 SAQs Absolutely. in 50 minutes yep. because I wasn't sure I would be able to do it physically. I did, I did too. Mm. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, as a run-up, I mean, this was how terrible it was that I actually had to change my ballpoint pens to to uh, ink flow, those gel pens, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. and bought a whole box to the exam because it yeah. was such low friction that it was easier to write with that. I mean, obviously, you know, each person is different, and but I, I find myself increasingly typing as opposed mm. to handwriting things yeah, yeah. that's so true mm. that's so true the 100%. art of writing a lot particularly in a short period of time is being lost so you do need to condition yourself to be able to do that because it's really hard and if it's illegible you don't get the marks <laughs> that is hard. true don't forget that people it has to be legible <laughs> i think the other thing too in terms of practicing the handwriting but then i'm not quite sure what ansca's plan is this time around but it's quite possible at this exam or future exams you'll also need to be masked and even just having that experience of wearing a mask and performing the exam, whether that's the written or the vibes, we're not yeah. sure yet. We haven't yeah. got the details from ANSCA. But actually practicing all the little things that are going to affect you physically on the day, I think that might be lost, but mm. that actually can help eliminate the noise and make you focus on the exam. So I'm a 
big sort of preparer and and if you can get rid of as many mental load factors as you can in yeah. your preparation, you can yeah. actually just focus on what it is you're putting on the paper. Look, I think, Kate, whilst you're bringing that up, uh, I've, I've always... Uh, it's irrelevant now because the medicine's been put aside for mm. for a little bit, so you don't have to do the medicals. But I've always been a a big fan of saying to to candidates preparing, look, turn up to work in a suit, yeah, uh, for yeah. a few weeks beforehand. Mm. Go to clinic, see all your patients leaning over in a suit and mm. and being able to reach over them, that sort of stuff. So you know, you never know. This podcast might be listened to when COVID's gone. Please, uh, but uh, <laughs> next week. Yeah, but uh, but if that, if that happens, yes, I, I agree with you. You know, try and create recreate conditions mm. so that it's not the first time you're experiencing them in the exam. Mm. Yeah, mm, that's 100%. great advice. Now, just another quick sub question before we move on. Mm. We mentioned in a previous podcast lead-in times to the right. exam, and there's obviously going to be a lot of variation between candidates. Uh, do you have an ideal lead-in time where you think people should start studying? What are your what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it really depends whether you've done a lot of clinical cases and what your life experience is. You know, importantly, when you've seen clinical cases, have you had the responsibility to think analytically about approaching these cases? You know, anybody can be a registrar and just be told what to do Mm -hmm. and not take ownership of a case. If you've done a lot of independent work and you've got a lot of experience, then then look, that adds a lot to your level of knowledge and your ability to answer. Uh, Look, one of our Royal Brisbane, very clever intensivist years ago, passed the anaesthetic fellowship after only six weeks of study. Stop it. Indeed. But he'd already passed his ICU fellowship and was working, right, for for a long (laughs) time. Now, I really think that 12 months is normal. And I think, you know, less than that, uh, registrars end up being undercooked. That's really interesting to hear you say that. That's probably our experience as well, looking Mm. back to the people that we studied with. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to do a short run, I think. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So we've talked about some of the positive attributes of preparing for the exam, but <laughs> what would you say are some of the key mistakes that candidates make Oof. in their preparation for the final exam? Right, um, key mistakes. Well, I think people should realise that 50% of the multi-choice are repeat questions, mm. right? And, I mean, I don't even know if that's an official thing, but we know that 50% are repeats and that candidates who have studied the MCQ bank score in excess of 80% success on those repeat questions. Okay, so the reality is that if you're going to be the candidate that says, oh, I'm just going to study knowledge and I'm going to approach the entire paper sight unseen, Mm -hmm. that's a foolishness, I think. Mm -hmm. And in corollary, everyone's on a level playing field for the other 50%. So you do need a good level of facts to approach the other half. So if all you've done is study old MCQ questions and not studied anything else, then you're going to fail in the other half. Mm. And if those of you who think that I'm not going to study any MCQs, will fail in the first half, mm. right? Then the other thing is that it's a bit distracting when they say the minimum 40% uh, achievement for the SAQ. Now, putting that in has encouraged people to study harder for the SAQ. You can't just sort of throw it away and say, I'm not going to bother anymore with that because I'm just going to uh, game the numbers, which is what a lot of people used to do before that rule came in. That's shocking. I had no idea. Yeah, well, people just used yeah. to say, well, it's only worth 20%. I'll just make a, a punt at writing a few silly comments on SAQs and I'll just get in on the strength of my MCQs. Mm. And so that's why the percentages got changed, right? And yeah. so now there's a minimum 
that you should get at least 40% in both parts of the paper mm. so that you don't end up with people, as I say, gaming the system. Mm. I think, uh, as I said earlier, if you can explain yourself in a viva and you can translate to making clear points in an SAQ. So that means if you can say the points you want to say and you can say it concisely, you can write it down on paper, your SAQs will score well. You know, mm. I think there's a big problem with SAQs. People write nebulous, non-concrete answers, mm. right? So let me put it this way. If a junior registrar, let's say a first-year BTY1, is asking you for advice as a senior registrar and saying, can you please help me with this 90-year-old hip, for example, all right? But the advice you give them cannot be acted upon, then your answer is meaningless. For example, well, I suggest you maintain hemodynamic stability, <laughs> right? That, that's a common statement you see in SAQ statements. And, and, well, what does that mean, you know? I think you, you make the presumption that the examiner knows what you mean, but the examiner is marking you on the basis he doesn't know what your thoughts yeah. are, okay? So what, what, a systolic of 50, is that hemo, hemodynamic mm. stability? Or if you make a, a nebulous statement like, I think we should refer to cardiology. <laughs> well, well, what for? For an angio? For an echo? And, and if so, what endpoint would you be happy with from cardiology? So people oftentimes think, throw away lines like, I would refer to cardiology as a be-all and end-all solution mm -hmm. to optimizing a patient, for example, uh, before proceeding to surgery. But what they don't realize is that if a junior red hears that, you know, what do they think? What am I? What am I sending the person to cardiology for? Mm. Yeah. You know, and if the results come back, what am I acting upon? Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, I think it does apply to to vivas as well. So, you know, I think people who might listen to this might think, oh, well, Mark's suggesting that I put a lot more detail into my answers, and doesn't he understand that it's only ten minutes, and I'm not going to write all that that stuff down. One, I, I absolutely understand the time pressure. Mm. What I'm suggesting is people learn how to write things in a concise way and go straight for the end point that mm. they're chasing after. Then their points need to be clear. Mm. They need to have direction and they need to have intention. Mm. If you do that, you don't have to write waffly introductions to topics and you don't have to pad out your statements. You know, I've marked somebody's exam paper, uh, short answer question and given them 10 out of 10 because they wrote 17 dot points that entirely covered the question. That's amazing. Yeah. Mm. And they didn't even go through a second page. Oh, that's yeah. even more amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Brevity. Yeah. yeah. But pointedness, you know. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct statements. Yeah. Each one's correct statements. Each yeah. one making a, a discreet and pointed remark mm. about the topic involved. That's amazing. And that's I think that's really important for registrars to know is that they can create short answer, you know, responses that are like that. And as long as they're getting the guts of everything down without the waffle, then they're still going to get the marks, even if they're not in complete sentences. I think that's a really, really important learning point. So in actual great. fact, waffle tends to distract. Yeah. So good categorization, SAQ especially, good categorization of, of your topics, you know, um, your broad strokes as to where you are. Give yourself enough space so that you can pop in the, the, the last minute thoughts that you, mm, that yeah. come to your mind whilst you're constructing this answer. Use lots of dots, points that have clear direction. 
rather than just making whole wholesale paragraphs of of you know I would approach this patient with with concern and with caring and I would approach this patient with you know maintaining um, um, good oxygenation and and hemodynamic stability oh my god please stop <laughs> I think also too Mark it comes back to a point that you made before about you're taking ownership of the cases in mm. theatre and your clinical preparation because it's pretty unlikely you're going to call, you know, pick up the phone to say your consultant and say, yeah, this is my hip patient, I'm going to refer them to cardiology. You know, you just, it's very, un- even as, as a junior registrar, you're very unlikely to have a plan as nebulous as that. Exactly. And I think people get very confused, you know, it's real life versus the exam, but in fact the two actually are the same. a large event overlap. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really important. Mm. So, Mark, I think we've got so much to chat about, we're actually going to have to stretch this to another episode. <laughs> uh, so. Thank you for being with us. No worries. Um, And we will catch up again next time. Thanks, guys. So that's it for episode two, part one of our interview with an examiner. You can find and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. And don't forget to rate and review us too. For any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email deepbreathspod at gmail.com. If you know someone who would be a great guest or you think that you would be a great guest, we'd love to hear from you too. Thanks for listening and hope you can join us for our next episode of Deep Breaths.